0: Worship team. We are continuing on in our series in the, the book of Philippians, chapter 3 today, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 16. So if you have a Bible there, if you turn to Philippians 3, and if you don't, there's a, a blue Bible in front of you, page 981, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. As you find that. One more story about Sarah Messer. Her caregiver called me, I don't know, a week ago, and said, I just want you to know, you know, what a comfort your voice is to Sarah when she's distressed. She wasn't able to sleep well, and as soon as we turned on your sermon, she went right to sleep. (laughs) And uh, I tried to take that as a compliment best I could, But I'm not encouraging anyone here to think that would be encouraging to Pastor Paul this morning. Uh, So, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And if anything you think, and if any think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. Before we move forward this morning in our our text, which really begins with verse 9, we've got to have our minds set on. We've got to remember what Paul has previously been talking about, which we talked about in last week's sermon. And the way I would say it is in last week's sermon, Paul changed addresses. He moved from one street to another. He no longer lives in his previous home on self-righteousness road that was the road that he lived on and according to verse 9 now he can be found on a new on a new street he can be found in christ in christ not having a righteousness of his own you might say paul no longer lives on self-righteousness road he lives on grace street he's changed addresses he In his old address, he had a beautiful trophy case that we talked about last week. All of the trophies that he had personally won for himself, all the good things that he has done that he anticipated would help him get into heaven. So he dies and he pulls in his trophy case and says, Lord, look at all the things that I've done. And that was Paul's hope. And those things are listed in verses 5 and 6. But then he has an encounter with grace. He has an encounter with Jesus, and following this encounter, he literally flushes his trophies down the toilet. The word rubbish there in verse 8, it means dung or manure. So all these things that he previously counted on saying, well, I gave money, and I came to church, and I helped this person, and that's going to somehow gain me my salvation. Those things, now he looks at those things as rubbish. And he flushes those things down the toilet because he's had a a living encounter with Jesus, with grace. There's only one road that leads to heaven. That's Grace Street. Every other street has a cul-de-sac, but that one road is how we meet Jesus. Paul realized he needed a righteousness or a goodness or a rightness, or a perfection, sometimes righteousness is kind of a big word, whatever that that is, he needed this righteousness, he needed it to come from another source, it needed to come from outside of himself, because he knew he couldn't somehow attain it for himself, and I love how Martin Luther, the great reformer, talks about it, he says we need an alien righteousness, isn't that a great term, we like aliens now in our space movies, we need some, something outside of our world. We can't find it in ourselves. We can't find it in our world. We need an alien righteousness. And when Luther was a Catholic monk, he would regularly go to confession. And imagine this, sometimes six hours at a time. He'd sit in this confessional booth, and he'd frustrate the priest in the other side. And the priest sometimes would say, Martin Luther... Go do a real sin and then come back. And he'd sit there for six hours. He just wanted to make sure he didn't have any sin left unconfessed because he was really terrified of God's judgment, and he became increasingly distressed that he couldn't satisfy the righteousness of God. He kept seeing himself as a sinner, and he said, there's no righteousness inside of me that I can give to God. And Luther once said, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. Luther really tried, but he was on the wrong street. One key verse for Luther to help him move addresses actually came, not surprisingly, from the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 1. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And here's the key phrase, for in the gospel a righteousness was revealed. See, in Jesus, a righteousness, an alien righteousness was revealed. And the good news is that I could have that righteousness. I I was no longer counting on my own righteousness. And so now, Luther, or you and I, we can stand on our head and we can shout for joy because God has taken Jesus' righteousness and counted it as Paul Phillips' righteousness. That's good news. We could end right now and say we had heard a great sermon. That's the gospel that all of the things that you're counting on, they're rubbish. And they've got to just be thrown away. And you just have to say, by faith, I'm just trusting it that God's transferring Jesus' perfection to me. So when Sarah meets Jesus on Wednesday, when Sarah meets the Lord, the Lord sees the perfection of Jesus in Sarah and says, Well done. Come in. Be with me. That's the gospel. That's, that's our hope here at Christ Community Church. Now we have this transition. You see this in verse 10, the word that or sometimes so that, this little circle word, okay? Paul's moving from this idea, and he's informing us that there are things to pursue now that we're in a new, new address, I'm telling you, I've moved from self-righteousness road to Grace Street so that, so that, so that there are new things to pursue. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Verse 10, so that, notice the very first thing, I may know him. That, that's probably the most important phrase there in this list of things that now you're pursuing, now that you live at this new address. The very first thing, you're moving in with Jesus to do what? To get to know Jesus. To really get to know Jesus, not to just know about him. I I was listening to a program this week, and the the speaker was talking about differences between left brain and right brain. And he said that your right brain runs on relationships, emotions, attachment, bonding. Your left brain runs on data information knowledge words and it's easy for some churches and i and i would suggest christ community church to be a left brain kind of church we're just trying to download knowledge here's what the text says here's some information about some doctrine and we want to support that and say celebrate that but we're not just left brain kind of people we're right brain people We're people who are meant to be in relationship with each other. We're meant to be in relationship with the Lord. I love when when Jesus' first followers uh, are coming after him. He says, come. What does he say? Follow me. Come. Meet me at a seminar at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. No, he doesn't say that. It's not that the seminar at 9 a.m. is bad, but what Jesus wants is a relationship. Come and be with me. Come and get to know me. Jesus understands real change passes through the conduit of a relationship. That's how change happens in people's lives. So he wants to be in that relationship. A a relationship with Jesus is what he's, he's moving towards. So that I may know him. Secondly, so that I may know the power of his resurrection. Now, this is a very, very deep well. And you can satisfy every thirst from this one well if you really understand the power of Jesus' resurrection. The power of Jesus' resurrection available for you right now. And Paul wants to know this power, he wants to be in touch with this power. And there are so many ways I could talk about this. It could be a whole sermon series. I just want to mention one way this power can be at work in you right now. John 13 is the Last Supper. Most of you are familiar with the scene. Everybody enters into the room. There's a bowl, there's a pitcher for the water, there's a towel, no servant. To wash the feet of the disciples nobody decides to take up the towel and do it for anybody including Jesus so they're all sitting around the table and it says this the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus and Jesus knew the father had put all things under his power Jesus had all this power and then it says Jesus knew he was returning to God He was absolutely sure of the resurrection. He had this in his view as he's sitting around this table. I am going to be resurrected, and I'm going to be with God the Father again. And so what did this security of his resurrection cause Jesus to do? If you have all power, and you know you're going to be with God, what would you do right at that moment? Oh, I can think of a lot of things I would do. What does Jesus do? He goes over to the corner, takes off his outer cloak, wraps a towel around his waist, and he washes the feet of all of his disciples, including Judas, his enemy. That's real power. That's the power of the resurrection. When you know the power of the resurrection, this is how you live. This is how you act. You're absolutely sold on the fact that you're going to see God face to face. So it reorients you to a different kind of power than the world would offer you. Let me give you one example. And it comes perfectly on the heels of our video from Benny. I got a chance to meet his father, who was the founder of Alpha Ministry. His name was Cherry and Matthews, a very unique man, uniquely gifted. And Benny has written a book about this ministry and how he's kind of picked up the mantle of this ministry. And he decides to open the book with this one story, and I want to read part of it to you. The first memory I have of my father, this is Benny speaking, is seeing him pressed up against a wall... One hand of a militant religious fanatic gripping his neck while the other punched my father repeatedly in the face. My mother stood helplessly nearby with tears streaming down her face. She pleaded with the man to stop as she held her newborn in her arms, and my terrified four year old brother clung to her legs. As the fist swung back again, my father held his Bible quietly in his hands allowing the painful blows to land. I was only six years old at the time, but I decided back then that my father was incapable of protecting himself, his family, or me. I was Listen, I was too young to understand the biblical concept of power. I was too young to understand the biblical concept of power made perfect in weakness or the strength it took to offer grace to those who neither wanted it or deserved it. To me, my father's superhero status was very well hidden. And it took me many years to fully comprehend the power that enabled my father to respond the way he did. You hear that? That's power. That's power. See, our, our, our view, and maybe especially as Americans in this culture, our power is loud. It's military. It's being in charge. It's control. It's all of those things. That's how we, we see power, and we step into Christianity, and we just assume that power sort of comes in with us, and we're just going to take over the world, and we have that kind of power mentality. And Jesus says, if you want to take over the world, this is the road. This is the road. This is real power. This is the power of the resurrection. And I could understand somebody, maybe even here today, saying, yeah, I don't don't know if I want to get on that road. When you move in with Jesus and you get to know Jesus, your, your views of power turn upside down. Benny didn't know that power for a long time. He knows it now. And I wonder about you and I. Do we really want to know the power of Jesus' resurrection? Or do we just want the resurrection at the end, but I want to operate with my power right now? takes time to understand the power of the resurrection verse 12 here's one of the most encouraging verses in all of scripture paul's moved into this new house on gray street and you see he's still a struggling christian not that i have already obtained all this this is such a great verse i I haven't obtained it i am not perfect paul the apostle he struggles my daughter-in-law, she always, she always says, they're on the struggle bus. Aren't you glad that the Apostle Paul has a seat on the struggle bus? That somehow he hasn't gotten it perfect, that he struggles himself. That's so encouraging to my own walk, which is far from perfect. He's on the struggle bus, and one of the biggest enemies to our soul is ourselves. Somehow believing we should be perfect, and we beat ourselves up when we're unable to be perfect, and we can't forgive ourselves. So pay close attention to what Paul says here next. But I press on. I know I'm not perfect, but, but I'm pressing on. It's not causing me to get stuck. I'm pressing on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Another translation, I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Christ has is holding on to me, and I'm pressing on. I'm I'm reaching out to take hold of Him, and no doubt Paul he loves sports, and he's probably got the Olympic games in his mind. He's always has these kind of analogies uh, peppered through his scriptures. the The idea that that this person probably a runner. He's pressing on he's straining he wants to be the first person to to break the tape his chest is out trying to win the race but this is kind of an unusual phrase because paul's pressing on he's leaning forward to win the race of resurrection yet it's a race that's already been won by jesus isn't that strange I'm pressing on to win something that's been won. Paul says this in, a, in another place, kind of an unusual way. Philippians two twelve. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Hmm. That sounds like you got to work for your salvation. Comma. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I'm confused here. Am I running to win the race, or has Jesus won the race? Am I working for my salvation, or has God already worked for it? What's the answer to that? Yes. Yes. God has already won it, and you are to press on. You're supposed to reach out. Another way it gets translated, I run to win that which Jesus has already won for me you feel that i'm running because the the winning is already done i'm 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 pressing in because i know what christ has already done and he's he's brought the victory this is paul's way of expressing that the christian life is a a full throttle effort it's it's not coasting grace isn't a street that you coast on It's not like, well, I got my ticket punched, so I'm just coasting. I'm just going to live in my life, but, you know, when I get to the end, I'm pulling out the piece of paper that I signed, and I get in because of, of grace. That's, if that's what you think, you might be on the wrong street. That's not the street Paul's describing. I love how Dallas Willard says it. Grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. So Paul understands this effort. He can't earn it, but it is a full-throttle effort. And I wonder if there's anyone here who's on the struggle bus. I, I want to ask you to raise your hands. You just oh, I'm just so imperfect. I just see it all the time. I have some sort of besetting sin or these things sort of keep coming towards me. And, and the Apostle Paul would want to say, don't get stuck there. Press on move out get help but press on find people who can help you come along and make progress don't don't get stuck don't get defeated anyone on the struggle bus anyone coasting anyone thinking well you know when i was 8 or 10 or 12 or 14 i i gave my life to christ and now i'm 28 or 58 And I've just coasted the whole time. There was a quote from somebody who said, hey, I'm really a one-year-old Christian 22 times. I've been a Christian 22 years, but I've never passed the infant stage because I I don't press on a coast. Anyone coasting? It's possible you're on the wrong street. Don't, don't deceive yourself. Verse 13. Paul continues on. Here's how you live on Gray Street. I'm, I'm, I, I'm knowing Jesus. I'm knowing the power of res- resurrection. I'm, I'm pressing on. I'm not coasting. Verse 13. But one thing I do. I love this. I love this especially as a preacher. Notice Paul says I have one point and then he slips in three. This is a classic preaching move. I just have one more thing to say, but it's got three points. I'm going to forget what lies behind. I'm going to strain for it. I'm going to press on. Paul, that feels like three more points. But he's got this one thing. They're all captured in these, these phrases. I'm forgetting what lies behind. Such a key phrase. What exactly is Paul forgetting? Forgetting. He's not forgetting his past life. He just listed all these things that used to be in his trophy case. A lot of ways to answer this. One commentator says, forgetting what lies behind means not dwelling on the past in a way that hinders your present effort and future progress. Let me say that again. When Paul says, I'm forgetting what lies behind, it means he's not dwelling on the past. Not that he can't remember it, but he's not dwelling on it in a way that hinders his current progress or his future progress. And I, say, I see this dwelling on the past taking shape in two primary ways, shame and pain. Let me explain what I mean. Shame. Shame prior to meeting Jesus Paul put Christians in prison and to death Anybody have a record like that I mean can you see how that shame could get you stuck I mean, here I've given my life to Christ, and I used to put these people in prison, and I feel so ashamed when I'm around them. I feel so ashamed of the kind of person I was. I I can't forget those faces of people I hurt. I can't forgive myself. So Paul easily could have gotten stuck there. It's not that he forgets it. He doesn't dwell on it in a way that prevents him from making future progress. Hindering shame is a reverse kind of pride. Believing that your unique sin is too big for Jesus to forgive. Oh, he can forgive your sin, but I mean, my sin, it's unique. You feel, you feel that? It's a way of having pride in your sin. It's a way of getting stuck in this sort of tar pit that you can't get yourself out of. I love the, the opening song, Oh for a Thousand Tongues. What a great verse. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He has canceled your sin, but I want you to know it still has a power over you. If you dwell on it, if you stay there, if you get stuck there, if you just say, I can't move forward, I can't be effective in the kingdom. No, Jesus' death it, he doesn't just pay it he breaks that power to say paul i want you to now move forward don't get stuck there don't get stuck in in shame shame is one of the ways you can get stuck in your christian life a second way is pain paul has experienced a lot of personal pain since he's been a christian in prison tortured he's experienced all kinds of physical and emotional abuse and it would would have been very easy for him to just kind of withdraw and shut down sort of the natural thing people are coming at you causing some emotional harm and you just sort of want to withdraw and just say i just i just anything to get out of this kind of pain and paul returns to a trip to jerusalem in acts 22 And he's really with his brothers. He's he's a Jew. He was a Pharisee. he's with this group of people that now hate Paul and they falsely accuse him. And as he tries to explain himself, listen to what the crowd shouts. This is his family shouting back at Paul, away with such a man. Away from this man from the earth. He shouldn't be allowed to live. You know, someone could think that about you. Somebody could treat you that way. Someone might have punched you in the face physically or emotionally. It'd be easy to get stuck in that kind of pain. It's possible that they want you to be stuck in that kind of pain. And Paul, he refuses to allow that kind of pain to rule his life. So what does he do? Paul forgets what is behind he doesn't dwell on those things he's he's straining forward to what lies ahead notice he doesn't say i'm coasting forward to what lies ahead why not not just because he needs to make every effort but when you have shame and pain in your life it takes every effort for you it's not something you coast out of you've got to you've got to remind yourself of the gospel over and over again You're probably going to need to get counsel and say, I've got got some wiring up here that constantly moves me in this direction. I know that's right, but I need some tools to get me to move in this direction. And you need some wisdom. You need some counsel. You need somebody to help you to say, think this way, move this way, move away from those things. It takes time. You've got to strain forward to get unstuck from shame or pain. It's like stretching. I just recently, for, as part of my new morning routine, just don't try to use your imagination here. <laughs> if I could just turn off the imagination button right now for everybody, I'd do that. But part of my new morning routine is Paul Phillips stretching for 10 or 15 minutes, because I'm, I'm. It's hard to n- believe, but I'm as flexible as like a flagpole, <laughs> and so. The person on my little phone video, they're all rubber bands, right? I mean, these people never, they're not, they're like, ooh, that hurts. And I'm like, come on. (laughs) And they have this sort of irritating phrase that they use, and some of you are going to be familiar with it. So they might say, okay, bend over and, you know, put your hands on your thighs or put your hands on your knees or put your hands on your shin or put your hands on the floor. Put your elbows on the floor. Put your head on the floor. I mean, I'm like, good grief. And what do they they say? Take what's available to you. And I'm going to say, what's available to me is my refrigerator and my bed. That's (laughs) easily available right now. No problems, no pain. But you can't can't start stretching and think, I'm going to look like this person or be this flexible after one 15-minute segment. You've got to do it over time, over years. Some of us have some pain and shame. It's not going to be a 15-minute session. You're going to have to take what's available to you right now and just say, I know there's a lot more I could be doing, but all I can do right now it's just this one next thing to move from putting my hands on my thighs to my knees. That's as far as I can go right now. It takes time. And I don't, I don't want your lack of flexibility, your lack of maturity to cause you to step back and say, I, I can't do that much. Well, press on. I think that's what Paul's saying in these last few verses about the maturity thing. Some people are mature to see this thing, and if you're not, it's okay. God's going to reveal it to you. You'll you'll mature. You'll see, okay, that's not the right way to think or act or move. I'm going to move in this direction. But I just want to encourage you with all of the the zeal that I think the apostle Paul has in this passage. Press on. Do not get stuck in your pain or your shame. Find people or ways to get help to move forward. Last thing. One, one final point. Verse 14. I press on. I press on toward the goal for the prize. I've already mentioned this in this service, this prize. I've got my eyes on the prize, this upward call. I'm moving towards God in Christ. I've got my eyes on the prize. As I used in our prayer today, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I've got my eyes on that prize. And because I have my eyes, one eye always on that prize, I can operate differently down here in the mess of this world because I know I'm moving towards something that's better. And I want to end by listening to a part, just part of an old gospel song written by Alice Wine. Alice Wine, 1956. During the, the worst of times, she sort of re- took an old song and rewrote it because of all the difficulty she ex- personally experienced in segregation where people were beating down black bodies and trying to beat down hope for the black community. And it turned into a significant song, Eyes on the Prize. If you've watched anything with the Civil Rights Movement, somehow this song has been incorporated in it. Alice grew up in South Carolina under Jim, Jim Crow laws. She wasn't allowed to go to school past the third grade. Because in fourth grade, she was able to go be productive in the fields. She effectively lived in slavery, but she didn't want to get stuck there. See, this would have been an easy place to get stuck. Because outside circumstances weren't changing. And she couldn't change those. So she had to keep her eyes on a different prize. She had to change her internal viewpoint. And so she takes this song and she's, she's encouraging herself. She's encouraged so many other people. And hopefully it will be an encouragement to you. Hold on. Hold on. Keep your eyes on the prize. Let's listen to the song and then we'll pray. All and Silas bound in jail. Uh-huh. Had no sure. money for the Gordy Bale. Now keep your eyes on the prize. the gospel and i wouldn't take anything else i wouldn't get on any other journey even if it included slavery because i have my hands on the gospel that's somebody who gets the power of the resurrection lord would you help us understand what you're talking about through the apostle paul what you're talking about through Cherry and Matthews, what you're talking about through Alice Wine, to have our eyes on something that causes us to press on in a completely new way. Because we have our eyes set on you, the prize, the upward call of Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.